2: This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everyone, my name is John Bleesdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm afraid I've got COVID pretty bad, so that's why this episode is going out a little bit late by a few hours, but I, uh, I couldn't miss sharing this episode with you. Matt Glasby is a film journalist and writer, he's the author of three books, the A to Z of film directors, Britpop cinema, and uh, his latest, which is a book on horror films called the big, called <laughs> The Book of Horror... Uh, An an Anatomy of Fear in Film Sorry for garbling that uh, Matt and our conversation uh, Covers pretty much those subjects Um, And I'm going to cough in a minute So I'm just going to let you Enjoy the conversation
0: The, long, the short story, mm-hmm. uh, I studied film at university, I moved to Hong Kong randomly, I became a journalist there and specialised in film, obvious reasons, moved back to London and then slowly worked my way up through, there was a lot more film magazines then, this is like the early noughties, I'm sure you had the same experience, there was a lot more going on and yeah, uh, bit by bit, parlayed that into a book writing sideline i'd love to say career but it's a sideline mm. and that's basically where we find us here i'm a film critic some of the time i'm a sub editor a lot of the time and
2: uh i write books the rest of the time i love sub editors they're my favorite they're my favorite kind of editor <laughs> someone's got to haven't they <laughs> oh man no, no i'm not i'm not even kidding there's I've yeah. so many times i've got something back with some corrections and gone oh thank you thank you so much yeah, it's that thing,
0: isn't it? It's the goalkeeper that like there's so many unthanked moments where you know that you've saved someone something really embarrassing. And, you know, I get subbed by other people and they save me from doing embarrassing things. And I'm very happy about that. And also they cut the things that I love and I'm furious about it. But that's, you know, that's the deal, isn't it? You just have to take it. Yeah, in it's intended.
2: How long were you in Hong Kong,
0: Matt? Uh, 18 months or so. Oh,
2: so kind of quite a quite a good bite
0: yeah quite a good bite and it was incredible it was just incredibly formative i was going from sort of traveling studenty stuff into right what the hell am i going to do with my life and hong kong as it was then is it's quite easy for someone with no qualifications to get quite far in something like you sort of sort of cowboy there, you can say i'm a so-and-so and suddenly you are and mm. so actually i was 23 and running the film section and chief sub of this reasonably large magazine with no prior experience because i, I said that i could and some idiot took a chance on me so you know it gave give you that chance to sort which would never have happened here yeah. i'd have had to work i would had to have a qualification <laughs> have to work my way through the ranks i'd have had to know basically what i was doing but um that allowed me to sort of guess at it and you know that you're sure you've had the same thing is that if you go somewhere and you have to pretend enough eventually you work out actually you know how to do the thing you're pretending to do um, so it was a hell of an education in a
2: lot of ways It's always that thing that people talk about imposter syndrome now, and you sort of we nod our heads gravely and go, "Oh yes, that's a terrible thing. Don't worry about it. We all Mm -hmm. feel like that." But I'm actually an imposter. (laughs) (laughs) I think I must. I I invented imposter syndrome to cover my ass.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's it. You know, everything says, you know, um, people say, oh, youngsters say, "Oh, do I need a journalism degree or do whatever?" And you am like, "What? What are you talking about? Like, I don't, mm. I don't have any of this. I'm sure you do, and I'm sure it's incredibly valuable, but uh, there was quite a uh, quite a strange way into the industry, anyway.
2: Um, oh no, I don't. I don't exactly. have a journalism degree. I, I never studied film at, at university, and I never. Oh wow, so you don't, you don't even have that? What are you doing here? <laughs> no, I, I told you, I'm a fucking imposter. <laughs> Whereabouts Hello. in Italy are you? Northeast, near near Venice. Oh, okay. So I go in and teach in Venice a couple of days a week, two, three days a week. And then... Uh... That sounds nice. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I live a blessed life. Yeah, what I was going to ask you about the Hong Kong thing as well. Were you sort of like attracted there also because of the cinema? Or did you, you know, the Hong Kong films coming out of... No, the... it, was pu- it
0: was purely personal. It was from right. the girl I was going out with at the time lived there and I uh, would both finish university I was from Exeter which is a lovely city in the southwest but not exactly full of prospects for mm. your young film hopeful and I didn't have a better idea so I went to Hong Kong and started out there and it worked out pretty well you know as as long as that went on it worked out pretty well as I said um and yeah then landed back in London with at least uh well I've done this and I've done this and I've done this even if those were for a I hesitate to use some cowboy organization, but, uh, but for, for, uh, yeah, for a magazine. Yeah, for a cowboy organization in Hong Kong, basically. And that gave me the chance to sort of toehold my way in and say, well, I am this and I can do this. And I could do it, but um, I'd learned
2: a rather strange way. And so you've, you've, uh, you've published a number of books. I'd, I'd start with the one I've read most recently, which is your book on uh, Brit, Brit Pop Cinema okay yeah. um that's a really interesting concept i hadn't really i hadn't even really considered that as a sort of genre do you want to just explain for us the, the, the that sort of genre for you?
0: yeah the idea was is that um especially a little while ago we were looking back at the 90s in britain and you know new labor cool britannia brit pop music um i don't know about you but I, I was in my mid-teens around that era so it was quite an exciting era anyway and there's lots of uh you know Colin has been expended on Oasis versus Blur, and, you know, this is the sort of the, ne- the new 60s for English creativity and also British creativity, sorry, and also Britain considering itself a creative power. You know, we got rid of grunge and then had our own bands and talking in your own vernacular. And it occurred to me that we also did that in cinema, but that no one had really ever written about it. And that so I, what I then sought to do was sort of plot what I consider to be Britpop cinema, which, which was often in the wake of Train Spotting and Danny Boyle, sort of related, or or people often aping his style, but was a sort of confident new cinema that um, seemed in the eighties. Growing up, there was like Merchant Ivory costume drama, and there was Mike Lee gritty realism, and we didn't have anything in the middle. And this felt like Britpop cinema: your Train spottings, your Human Traffics, your Lock Stocks. Felt like we had sort of entertaining films that were very, very British. You know, you, you, they had um, some of them had subtitles in America because they were so um, British. Oh, is, is that just...
2: true? I always thought that yeah, was a yeah. myth. That, that's actually. I, they did the. With train spotting? Certain,
0: certain scenes of train spotting were subtitled, yes, for sense. Not the whole thing, but certain right. scenes were. Right. And um, I believe, I'm not sure about the others actually. And maybe,
2: maybe some of it was re recorded. Gregory Girl which is in the 80s uh Gregory's Girl um, they they actually they did a different version they 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 dubbed it essentially from Scottish into I, I presume a more understandable Scottish for the Americans. Yeah. Oh, no. So they didn't dub it into American because that would have been, I, would I, have been great. <laughs> God, now, now, as soon as we finish this episode, I'm going to go onto YouTube and check out if they, if, yes. if there is one. But no, that's what I heard. Anyway, that's something I, I heard an interview, I think on the film programme years ago, and I, they were talking about how it was in the States. It was, it was redubbed. So this, um, so that's yeah that's
0: a big part of it so the idea that we were making films for ourselves and if the rest of the world cared or interested then so be it and that there was a sort of peak of british film uh, production and there's a lot more money going into it and there was a lot more interesting uh, sort of you know, your train spottings etc and that started around that point with train spotting in and probably ended um, with uh, This Is England, I was sort of putting as the last cut of that version of that film quite a lot later. And so, yeah, I was just trying to chart a movement that I sort of largely made up, but I do think existed um, and hasn't been paid the
2: sort of attention that the book paid it, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really convincing, it's a really convincing argument. And uh, especially the, um, I like the way as well, you sort of say, you know, some uh, s- certain films of a filmmaker Belong in this category, but other films of the say of the same filmmaker don't necessarily so. I think Shane Meadows. Well, you use this as England as your last point, but you say None, Dead Man's Shoes. No, 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 no. That's not Britpop. Yeah. I love that film, but no way is it. But one of the things about Britpop cinema is that
0: it's enthusiastic, it's optimistic, it's full yeah. of this like new labour, we can do it. And Dead, <laughs> Dead Man's Shoes is the darkest film, but you know one of the darkest films you'll ever think to see. So yes, there are lots of films of that period which aren't Britpop cinema, and what obviously one of the joys of, if you've invented your own very niche term is that I get to decide what's in it because <laughs> <laughs> like who's going to argue I mean you know so yeah, I, I, mean, wrote the, I, I wrote that I wrote book <laughs> yeah, I wrote that book <laughs> exactly no, I mean off. I coined it I literally coined that term and uh you know I'd be very welcome to debate what should be included in it but you know I do get the final
2: say on that one definitely you're the arbiter. That's good. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, but I mean, it makes sense because you know the, the word pop has that sort of optimism about mm. it, and that uh, and that energy. And I mean, you refer to Hard Days Night, and I like the way you yeah. put it, sort of in a historical context as well. Also, the historical context of the '80s being, you know, you quote figures of uh, of investment in film going from something like 200, almost 300 million pounds a year. In the beginning of the 80s, and by the end of it, it's like 70 million. It's, I mean, a huge drop. Um, so that I mean, it's like, you know, the the British film industry like didn't decline, it was murdered. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to so that looking back at it for the
0: book, you know, you're looking at it from a historical perspective and trying to prove things, but looking at it from someone that grew up in the 80s, there was no English, no British films were of any interest. It was all Hollywood. And then, you know, so it's 92 and you can go and see Peter's Friends or something like that. And then suddenly it's 94 and you can go see Shallow Grave and all this stuff. And that just seems to me like complete worlds apart, like what had changed in these few years. And it turns out an absolute number of things from the mood of the nation to financing to, you know, uh all those sorts of things so it did feel like there was an unexplored movement to explore and actually i spoke to lots of of the filmmakers from the time and some of them said this is total bollocks there there wasn't a movement (laughs) and others (laughs) went oh that's interesting you know so you know the jury's out but um yeah it was definitely
2: an interesting way of looking back at this really exciting period of cinema this is the thing about critics is we we sort of do get the opportunity to say to people this was a movement and these look at these five people together mm. who are working and they don't have to know it they, they're not the experts you, you make you make the films we'll we'll decide if it's a movement or not
0: yeah exactly From- um, and so that yeah the book goes into that as a movement and um yeah it was uh I thought I'd found a niche that no one had written about and it turns mm. out I had, but I don't I think that also means sometimes when you find a niche, it means there's an amazing opportunity that you know the world's waiting for this niche. And sometimes there's a niche because No one really cares. So I think on what on the world stage, the world was not rocked by the the uh, release of Britpop cinema, but hopefully some people in you know more parochially and in the in UK cinema, you know, thought it was interesting.
2: Oh my God! You're talking to somebody who's who's running a a podcast exclusively devoted to books on cinema. So we 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 we, instead of edge lords, we're niche lords, baby. What was your, and also one of the things I liked about it is you were, didn't make any sort of big claims necessarily for for quality. There were some of the films, obviously, that you thought were amazing and, and you know, um, you know, Trainspotting, obviously one. Uh, and then there were other films that you were like, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a Britpop film, but it's not very good.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? It's, it's and shooting having,
2: Fish. Shooting Fish was whatever. Shooting of
0: them. Fish, yeah. Spice World. There's all these films that, are very representative of the times, so and they totally fit in that category, and and are pretty terrible. And as you said, with Dead Man's Shoes, there's lots of films of the time that are brilliant and don't fit in the category. So you find yourself as like a huge Dead Man's Shoes fan, writing, you know. Five thousand words on Spice World, and then you know five hundred words on Dead Man's Shoes. You're like, what? What has happened to the world? But, you know, why am I writing a shooting fist chapter?
2: But, I've I've never even seen Spice World. Is it? Is is it? Is there anything redeeming in it? Is it like? Is there a campness that you that you can enjoy now? Yeah,
0: maybe. Maybe there's a
2: lot of there's a lot of
0: effort. It's not boring. There's All a ton right. of things happening. And what looking at it now, there's the kind of there's lots of cameos from people that are now would now be considered incredibly cut rates so you know oh my god it's Michael Barrymore which might have been a coup in 1996 when they made it or 97 but suddenly obviously isn't and then oh it's Jules Holland you know like, oh, Jules Holland's on TV every night he's not it's not <laughs> and so it's that thing where it feels it must have felt star studded but now you look back and you're like
2: wow you've got Jules Holland and Michael Barrymore in the same yeah. film set like this isn't yeah, yeah I mean in the 90s I don't even think Michael Barrymore in the 90s was uh was that bigger? I mean, certainly not. That in terms of their ambitions of being international pop stars. Yeah, I mean, you watch how, how many people in America are going to be watching it, going, "Oh, chills, Holland." Yeah, exactly. Oh, I lo- I love Strike It Lucky. I mean, no, <laughs> right, no <it's>
0: gonna... <laughs> and I think I spoke to the guy, the producer, and he said, you know, this is just a case of how long are they going to be famous for? Let's bang this out, let's make as much money as possible. And he was very honest about that. Right. Um, and I know the Spice Girls are their their influence is being is being re-looked at again through sort of um less gendered eyes and i'm all behind that but yeah the film is still
2: not good <laughs> right there's no redeeming <laughs> there's no rescuing it for for future no i don't think so no um, i mean i don't know i mean we i, I don't know it's put, put... Films like sort of Showgirls have, have been sort of re-evaluated, retaken. Adam Nyman was, was on the podcast talking about that. But there are mm. other films that are just bad, I think. I mean, Bullseye, Michael Winner, that, that's a film that, you know, it's so bad, it's just still bad. Bullseye, like based yeah.
0: on the game show?
2: No, no, no okay. that would that would have been better. <laughs> I would watch that. Yeah, exactly. No, this is a Michael Winner. I, I tell you, it's it's it, it it's it makes you cry when you think of the sort of people involved, the talent involved. It's Michael Caine yeah. and Roger Moore, uh, mm. in a kind of dirty, rotten scoundrels sort of caper, and yeah. it's awful. It's just just awful. It's just badly written, poorly directed, and you know surprisingly from the director of death wish three um it's just yeah no it's really really naff um and there's no I, there's no sort of enjoying it for it being which i always find a very dubious quality anyway that idea of oh it's so bad it's good there are exceptional cases like the room which yeah. you know is, is is genuinely sublimely brilliant um yeah because it's so awful
0: yeah, I mean, it's about things being made by people of of, of talent or of, of really going for something, isn't it? Where sometimes things are just made by people with no talent who aren't really going for something, and yeah, that is often um, quite hard to
2: watch. Yeah, but well, that's Michael. That's Michael Winner. That's his entire. Okay, well, I, pro- I probably will give Bullseye a,
0: a miss <laughs> to be honest. Also, we've got to remember, having researched that book, I've written, watched a lot of terrible British films that that fell by the wayside uh, for various reasons. So yeah, I don't I don't need to add to that list. I want to see the good stuff.
2: What about a Britpop film that, you, that hasn't got the high um, profile that obviously Trainspotting and Maidening, maybe a little bit more forgotten? What, what film would you recommend of uh, uh, that genre?
0: That's a very good point. It's it's still got a profile, but I mean, I I think human traffic is in, is very very underrated. I think it looked a lot like train spotting because um, it's got a voiceover and it's got sort of you know obviously drug taking and that sort of thing. So it, it looked like a copycat, but actually it was made uh, by the director of real talent and a really great cast, and it, it actually it's just got that kind of lovely feel to it. Um, and I would, love, would have loved to have seen more from, from the director. He only made one more film so far. So I think that's underrated still, and I think anyone that
2: watches that has a really good time. I just remember seeing that at the cinema and thinking, God, who's that actor? He's amazing. It's the first time I've ever seen him and waiting for the credits to go, but it was Danny Dyer. I think, right? Yeah. i remember that name. That's He's going to be a star. <laughs> it's a funny old game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's genuinely brilliant in that film. He's absolutely great. Yeah, he's
0: got a lot of charisma, you know, back then, and... and that's what that's something like a film like that's based around is actually all, all of the leads have got a tremendous charisma. It all seems to really get on and you just want to spend time in their company, which I think looks very easy, but actually, once you've got that down, you can do anything with a film. You can make it hours long. You could have any, all sorts of sort of twists of fantasy because they're just really nice, normal kids and they've got a ton of charisma and they look like they're having a great time. Yeah. And the other one you were going to say? I was going to say 24 hour party people. Obviously it's Michael Winterbottom, so it's known, but, Um, even they say themselves it's the Steve Coogan playing um Tony Wilson of Factory Records and they say themselves it it just arrived at the wrong time it was 2002 three maybe and this Britpop cinema wave that I've been talking about it just sort of crashed companies were going out of business people weren't so interested in this stuff anymore and it just didn't get the audience that it deserves but it's really 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 funny um there's Almost anyone you can name in alternative British music or alternative British comedy pops up for two seconds, and it's one of those films you can sort of rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. If it's on late at night, you watch five minutes,
2: you know you're watching the whole thing. Yeah, twenty four hour party people. I've seen that. I thought that was a I thought it was a really decent sort of yeah. sort of cross genre f- film as well. It's not quite a biopic, and it's not quite a. It feels a little bit almost like a comedy documentary.
0: Yeah, and also just you know you'd say. You know, uh, Steve Coogan, Paddy Constantine, uh, Sean Harris, uh, Simon Pegg. Uh, you could just list Andy Circus. like I'm going to forget some people, but the list Peter Kay here, like just this amazing, amazing cast. Shirley Henderson uh, keeps on going with people. You like, oh, that. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, in, in
2: even the tiniest roles. Yeah, no, that's definitely both of those films. I would I would definitely heartily recommend as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, OK, so and then you did. Uh, I'm not sure I'm not even taking I'm not taking these chronologically. I'm taking them by the that's order of. Of, of me reading them um you've done a, a, a sort of encyclopedia of horror basically an A to Z of horror right horror movies yeah uh, what what was the uh, sort of the motivation for that was that uh, some uh, was it a company that you were working for or how did how did that come about
0: so the book is the Book of Horror, very right. easy to remember,
2: and I've got to credit uh,
0: Barney Badawano who does the beautiful black and white illustrations throughout. Maybe we'll talk yeah. about that later, but sure. his stuff's just amazing. Um, I've been a f- horror fan my whole life. It's that is that is the bit of film that's that's the one for me, um, and and literature and what have you. That is my biggest passion. And after I wrote Britpop Cinema, I came up with an idea for the scariest. The, basically, there's lots of books on horror about the history of horror. And right. the exorcist is important because of this. And the 1930s, we were a golden age because of that. But when I watch a horror movie, I want to know if it's scary or not. And it's fine if it's not. There's lots of great horror movies that aren't scary or horror comedies or what have you. But my personal thing is I want to know that it's scary. And other than that, I don't really care. And there's, there is no book. There is no single book out there collating the scariest movies ever made. And yet, to me, that's a massive factor. So I pitched a book collating the top 100 scary movies ever made. And then um, I got a publisher, Quarto, publish, uh, Quarto, Quarto. <laughs> Quarto? I got a publisher called Quarto. <laughs> and they suggested uh, some changes to the format. And basically, we came up with the format together. But, the, yeah, the idea was that it would, be, it would collect the scariest films ever made. And that some of the films in the book aren't good films. And some of them are this and some of them that. But all of them are scary. And that was mm. yeah. That seems to me a US uh, an interesting USP.
2: Yeah, that that is an interesting point that it being scary doesn't necessarily make it a good film. Mm. Being a good film doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be scary. I mean, oh, I don't yeah. I don't find The Shining at all scary. And I'm tr- I was trying to think about this the other day it, whether I ever did. You know, because I've I can't remember a time that I hadn't already seen The Shining ten times. Yeah. So I can't remember that first viewing. And recently very recently like 4 years ago i think i saw it at can they did a, a you know new print and a you know mass 4k sort of whatever and they they showed it and i for the first time i kind of found it that's the scariest i've ever found it was on the big screen in a cinema and it suddenly became a lot creepier
0: yeah, there's, there are scenes for me which are really creepy. You know, obviously the woman in the bath and stuff, the the trikes around the corridor. I do agree that overall it probably isn't as scary as it rep, as its reputation suggests. I think we know too much about it. I think there's, you know, Kubik's famous sort of locked down control, which I think you can feel and it doesn't necessarily help a horror scenario. I think uh, Jack Nicholson's too famous. You know, there's the famous Stephen King quote about low-budget horror, and I really do think um it's easy to scare people if you don't know anything about the people you're watching if you have you know it's easy for for it to feel like an artifact of Blair Witch Project and Evil Dead big blockbuster horror doesn't tend to be very scary um The Shining is a strange one and I've had a strange relationship with it. there's been times I've hated it there's been times I really thought it lacked and then watching it over the years and watching it again for the book I've sort of come to the conclusion that it's like a, a beautiful but flawed thing that's not exactly for me but has incredible moments maybe it doesn't all hang together I've got a lot of stick for that opinion as a horror critic. Mm. Um, it's not a popular one to have. Um, but, yeah, it is. The world is more interesting with The Shining in it than without it. But, yes, it's a flawed piece of work for me. But, you know, here's me calling Kubrick flawed. So, <laughs> well,
2: no, I mean, he is one of those. My favourite filmmakers sort of have, have made a large number of sort of fla- what I would consider flawed masterpieces. You know, I mean, Lee, I yeah. love Sergio Leone, but I think Once Upon a Time in America is incredibly problematic right um and I love Kubrick and I think you know Clockwork Orange and, and The Shining are both have have their problems you know mm. but I, I find those flawed masterpieces kind of more interesting than a lot of people's perfect films
0: yeah there, there is a lot more to write about I mean you know that you could there, there were more six there were more successful horror films that for this book that are a lot harder to write about because actually it's quite boring what they're doing is quite you know good jump scares or what have you whereas you know people have written made documentaries about mad theories about the shining and we'll continue to debate it you know for the rest of time so yeah i think it's just one of those ones that's
2: that's an interesting film but yeah it's not a personal favorite of mine i love the breakdown that you have in the book of sort of different types of scares as well there's a different different levels of fear because i think that's a really interesting point well yeah the the publishers, um, Alice, my amazing
0: editor, they wanted an extra aspect to this book. They wanted something that you couldn't find elsewhere. And it was their suggestion was to, so I wanted this, the, you know, the, the scariest films ever. And they said, fine, but what we want you to do is we want you to break down why they're scary. Mm. So we came up with a system of seven scare tactics that I think every single film has and use them as like a graphic equaliser so some films have got this one turned right up and this one turned right down and that it was interesting to chart most of the, most successful horror films do all of these seven things in different forms and it would be really interesting to chart them uh yeah and that's that sort of provided a, a, an extra level to the book which was really interesting to go back over some of these films I knew like the back of my hands but to go back over them with an idea trying to work out exactly what they were doing well, so
2: what are those seven qualities just remind me well, and, I'm glad and, you lost. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to write this down because they obviously they're my seven scare texts. I thought I'm going to forget this.
0: So, and I'll give you a little explanation as to, as to what they mean as well. Sure, though. great. So the first one is dead space, which is, uh, it's a, a sort of d- about, about framing. And it's in negative space and positive space. Now, negative space is when there's loads of extra room around the subject of the shop. So it constantly feels like something is going to, you know, uh, be revealed. So say it follows, you've got great big wide frames and you're constantly searching for something in the back of them. And then positive space is when you're up very close to a subject and anything that suddenly intrudes into that frame is going to be really jarring. So that's dead space, um, the framing of of characters and how things intrude to them. Right. Second thing is the subliminal, which is anything that we don't notice is happening. So it might be subliminal inserts in the exorcist, or it might be, you know, buzzing bees on a soundtrack or something, which you're not going to register, but actually gives you a kind of fight or flight response. The third thing, and this is pretty common, is what I call the unexpected, which is like jump scares, plot twists, you know, say uh, Marion being killed off early in, the, in the Psycho is is the unexpected. And it lets you, stops you trusting the world you're seeing. The grotesque number four, this is probably the simplest, is basically blood, broken bodies, aliens, you know, horrible things, and when we see them, Uh, we have a physical reaction to them, and that's akin to fear. Revulsion and fear are pretty close. Right. Number five is dread, which is a really beautiful thing for a horror movie. And um, it's something like, you know, the Blair Witch Project, where you're just, you don't know what's going to happen, but you know something awful, and you're constantly waiting for it to come. Number six is the uncanny, which obviously goes back to Freud, which is sort of nightmare imagery, something that's just not quite right. You know, dolls that move or... Clowns. Sorry? Clowns. (laughs) clowns exactly and number seven is the unstoppable which is the sense in horror movies that something's been unleashed that can't be put back in and that could even be like you know repetitive score or it could be the way most horror movies sort of at the end come back to the beginning or leave you like leave you unresolved and that's the unstoppable and most horror movies do that to some degree as well so those are the seven and yeah the idea is is that some things are very grotesque but don't have much great dread and some things that you know are deeply uncanny, but uh, don't have any subliminal things. And you know, there's, there's, you can plot a path between those things to tell you what kind of scares you're going to get.
2: And and so, is that also sort of how you would define horror movies as well? Is sort of like it has to have several of these elements, or it has to have you know a major. Because I mean, I know, for instance, say Kim Kim Newman writing about horror movies, he he actually sort of coined the phrase "nightmare movies" because he wasn't happy with horror as a sort of generic you know, as a word, really, you
0: know. Well, I'm not going to go against Kim because he's the master.
2: <laughs> but, uh, the,
0: de- the definition I've used for the book is a horror film is a film that sets out to scare you. Right. So there's a lot of content, things that I have left out, and things I don't consider to be horror movies, and that's one of those, you know, we could debate for hours on end about some of those things. But I think that something that sets out to scare you through its subject matter, often as well through its style. You know, you could you could have a documentary, you could have a drama about a serial killer, you could have, You could tell these stories in different ways, Mm -hmm. but you could make a horror film about that serial killer and that would make you afraid of what it is he's going to do and how he does it and those things. So, yeah, I think, you know, when you're watching a horror movie, I think you, you know, just from a few frames that that's what it is.
2: I, I would agree. I think it's one of those things that um, it, it's a little bit, I mean, I think there was a Supreme Court justice who said about the same thing about pornography, said, you know, I, I know where, what, it's very difficult, <laughs> I'm very, it's very, very difficult to define, but I know exactly what it is when I see it, you know. And so it was yeah, a, a good one. essentially anything I say, that's porn or that's <laughs> a horror, that's, that's what it is. It's a bit like you and Britpop exactly yeah there's a pattern here isn't
0: there no I mean one of the things with uh, the, you know so you call this something the book of horror and you set out to to analyze the scariest movies ever made is that immediately you have to start putting in boundaries because you can't go right well I watch every film ever made you can't even go I watch every horror film ever made you know you need to uh establish so I established dates between we didn't do anything pre-world war ii mm. so it felt to me that Often that stuff is amazing, but it isn't still scary in the way that we mean that so that was a good cut off point. So it only gave me 75 years of horror films <laughs> to get through as opposed to 125. And, um, you know, things like that. You do have to narrow down that definition. And that obviously is open to interpretation and it leaves things out that people want included. But, you know, that's the nature of It's, it's a book, it's got, has to have an end.
2: I can't. What was the first film that really sort of scared you in a, a real maximal sort of like, oof, you know? I've been trying. See, I've been trying to think this. And it's, I just remember growing up
0: in soaked in horror and yeah. soaked in. You know, the, probably the same for most people. Stephen King and James Herbert, what have you. I, I do remember being very young. Basically, they'd show horror movies late night on maybe Channel Four, uh, ITV. You'd record them on video. This is like mid eighties, late eighties, and you'd just get what you were given. So you might get like a cheesy hammer film or you might get something like David Lynch or something so there's no real preparation for the 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 you know it must have been like eight or nine so I recorded Friday the 13th part six which is one of the good ones off telly um because I thought I'd be well into Jason and read about this stuff and then the next day I watched it with my lovely gran <laughs> it's, it's really really violent like it's really violent by Friday the 13th standards and we were both just quite hor- quite horrified but um obviously for me that led to a career in horror journalism and for her it probably led to <laughs> just thinking you know what have i what have, what have we done what have we raised but yeah i remember that really clearly and i'm um, just thinking it was brilliant and actually i love that film to this
2: day uh, that's something i'll have to put on my list on friday the 13th i've watched the first and the second uh and i think it was one of those things that they had it on uh amazon prime or something. they had all of them and i thought right i'm gonna and i watched the second and then the next day they took them all off so it was like i'd already seen the first watched the second was really really into the idea of doing them one at a time and just going through them in a week and they took them all off the next day and it was like that would be
0: quite that would be quite a week i mean i say that as a big fan but that is a big ask to watch them all back to back
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today.
2: Yeah, I'm not, I enjoy doing that sort of stuff. Like uh, I remember our local cinema showed the, all the Rocky films before Rocky Four came out. So, uh, so you okay. saw, uh, and they would do this thing. They did the same thing with Star Trek before voyage home came out and they, they just marathoned them and then they'd show the last one would be the the latest one so um, right, yeah. yeah yeah it was a real formative experience of sort of a barren furnace astra cinema uh yeah <laughs> Shout out. Yeah, <laughs> if you're so, listening, it's not there anymore. It's not there okay. anymore. It's it, now there stands a statue of Emmeline Hughes, where I once I queued to see Star Wars. Emmeline Hughes, the Liverpool football player. Yeah, he was from Barrow. He was a Barrow and Furnace <laughs> lad. Yeah, claim to fame for Barrow and Furnace. <laughs> is that's so brilliant that's so brilliantly small town isn't it yeah yeah what of lost head... a cinema but you've gained a statue of emlyn hughes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, if... no you know yeah. come on he was on question of sport all yeah. the time in the 1980s uh, he was he's in spice world <laughs> <laughs> he might be you know he, uh, he, he could be one of the ones um yeah so i mean uh I'm I'm always surprised as well when there are uh, films there there are films which still really really scare me. I would say my my uh, par- partly because it was a fo- another formative experience but yeah. um uh texas chainsaw massacre i, I still film i still find that i can't watch that film i mean I it's I, not
0: safe is it it's not, tr- it's not been
2: made safe and it's like that thing you said about big budget horror as well it, it, this is the uh, this somebody found I, I was talking to rob savage who did the um uh he did host the the Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about uh, Texas Chainsaw Muscat and he said, it's like it's been found in a dirty bath. (laughs) It's just like, like, they just got the film canisters out of a dirty bath and put them in the machine and that's what you're watching. That's it,
0: Wes Craven said, you know, we're all making these horror movies, but that one just felt like someone had gone and started killing people and they'd filmed it. And um, yeah, so true. And if Wes Craven's saying that, you know,
2: then you know you're doing something right. Absolutely, absolutely. Why? Why can't? I mean, that's the thing. Is big budget? I don't think. I mean, there have been some really good examples, but but they I think they've got the right idea with Blumhouse of going back to a sort of really limited budget and good yeah. ideas because good ideas yeah, are kind of yeah. cheap, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned um, Rob Savage and Host. I mean, I don't know what
0: Host costs to make, but this is the lockdown horror released last year. But I mean, that's surely an example of ingenious. Presumably, very, very low to no budget filmmaking that everyone's still talking about eighteen months later, which just shows that what you need is a good idea and some skill, and you know, especially with horror, that can get you that can get you onto the world stage. You know, to take the Blair Witch or something like that. So, actually, don't need these massive to throw these massive bucks behind it, uh, and it's also, as we said earlier, a little bit counterproductive. I think you can see, you know, the trailers, you can see the makeup trucks, you can kind of in your mind see how much people are pretending, and then you watch something like the Blair Witch Project, and you can the cast are genuinely terrified, and it's genuinely terrifying. Um, obviously you can't just torture people and film it, uh, that's not ethical, and it wouldn't work, but you know, but you can see on people's faces the degree of
2: acting they're doing, I think, in this thing. Uh, William Friedkin, I think, might, might, might argue that point. <laughs> <laughs> how do you mean well there is it's some filmmakers who go to extremes to to get illicit reactions yes. i mean on the exorcist he was slapping priests for crying out loud
0: yeah that's true that is a big budget horror film that, that feels mm. dangerous and has a lot of elements of the real about it it's another one i've got a strange relationship with but yeah people that one people are nuts about like people are fanatical about the exorcist i would say you can't you know it's you you to say there are flaws in the film is to invite an avalanche of criticism. Believe me, um, but it's, an,
2: it's a really interesting one. What flaws have you have you pointed out with that one?
0: Well, <laughs> just to
2: invite, just to invite okay. a lot of aggro. So it's it's very slow.
0: Mm-hmm. It's quite confusing as to, to exactly who everyone is and what's happening, you know, the astronaut, things like that, aren't really very well explained in the film. You need to read the book to, to get a clue about those things. You have an exorcist at the start, that dis- disappears for like an hour and then comes back and needs reintroducing, which, you know, may, may be how... I know it's based on some element of true stories and maybe that may be what happens, but from a film point of view, it isn't particularly elegant. Some of the effects are actually awesome, but they look more and more like effects now, which isn't a problem. They they still look great. Just those things like that. I'm not saying necessarily those are flaws, but those are things which I think might be barriers for someone today it having the same effect
2: on as it clearly did in the 70s on people. I read the book before I saw the film as well, and it was quite a... I mean, it might have been a couple of years after I read the book that because it was kind of difficult to get hold of, you know. I'm talking about, you know, 84, 85, you know. The film or the, the book? The film. Mm-hmm. You know the book was one of those books that was like handed around school, you know yeah that yeah, yeah. so it went around school and and everybody read the same copy, basically. And also, I went to a Catholic school, and I think, the Catholicism mm. of that of of the Exorcist is the most terrifying thing. The most terrifying thing for me about the Exorcist was like, oh shit, the priests are right, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, too. true. Actually, in, in a in a religious world, that film's a lot scarier than in a secular one. That's true. I, I grew up atheist, so I hadn't I never factored in this stuff, but you're right. If you've especially if you've been told. Uh, you know, Catholicism, Catholicism's the truth, and then to see that film. And it obviously, it is very realistic, and it do, is done in that Friedkin style of sort of, oh, well, I've just happened to have filmed this, that sort of semi-documentary style. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really, it's a film that I admire
2: more than I like. Um, well, we won't tell Mark Commode because I know he's uh, he gets very. Uh gets very upset about that I really quite like The Exorcist 2 as well I know that's got that's uh... the
0: one that's one I haven't seen everyone told me it was rubbish I didn't think it was going to be scary so I didn't watch it for this obviously The Exorcist 3 has got got its plus points and was I think it was almost included in the book and then I decided not quite it's a little bit too surreal it's just got that one great jump scare but yeah I'd love to see Exorcist 2 actually even if it's an absolute Sort of
2: train wreck. It's a train wreck full of really talented people. So. Exactly, and John Borman is not it's yeah. no slouch when it comes to directing a movie. Richard Burton, even in terrible movies, is always worth watching. Yeah, there are. I I, I mean, I saw it years ago, so I, I don't want to vouch for it too loudly, and then and then watch it and think, what was I talking about? This is awful. Yeah. But yeah, no, I um, mm, mm. what other movies did you include in the sort of upper echelon of the scare scare factor? Then, ooh,
0: that's a good question. I. It's difficult, isn't it, because what we've got here is that you've got a very subjective thing as how scary something is, and that I'm trying to, the book is trying to find a sort of science behind that. But ultimately, there is a subjective aspect. And so it is, so the things, that's looked, the things that I found scariest in it, I mean, throughout the book, we try and chart mm. how each film, the moments of which uh, each film is, is scariest. And I think some of the scariest moments through that would be ending of the Blair Witch Project, beginning of Suspiria, um, Sadako coming through the screen in Ringu, uh, the appearance of Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre behind the sort of charnel house door and just a pin oh, with a big, big hammer. Oh God. So those are obviously some of the huge scare moments, because those are the scariest things, some of the scariest things I've ever seen, some of the scariest moments in film history. Just the bit where he hits the guy with a hammer and the guy's foot does this jerky sort of,
2: Oh, that's. you so know. So I like, went to
0: see that. They, it was banned, obviously, and they re-released it when I was a student. And I went to see it with my lovely dad. <laughs> There's a bit of a pattern here. I dragged <laughs> Stop, my dad along. Stop going to see horror movies with members <laughs> of your family, Matt. And because I, I thought, oh, this would be great, you know, we've wanted to see it all this time. Because you read about these things, but you can't see them when you know when they're banned like, that way. And so we saw it in an uh, Exeter Picture House, and it was me and my dad and a bunch of students. And that scene happened, and I just felt this like chill this absolute chill it scared the absolute hell out of me and everyone else laughed and I know people say that there's a sort of black comedy aspect to the film which I could sort of see I just find it terrifying and very traumatic to watch but yeah my dad and I were sort of clutching each other's hands terrified and the rest of the audience was just uh, peeing themselves it was just such an odd you know, they were laughing at it and i don't really know why but obviously it was provoking a reaction and yeah we were really really scared and i obviously i stand by that to this day that that, that it's terrifying
2: do you think there's a danger as a so we're talking about context in a in a sense where, you know me going to a catholic school and watching exorcist and going ooh um but also i sometimes find some some horror fans have a sort of uh, machismo or 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 whatever is the non-gendered version of of hmm. you know of of machismo sort of I oh I it's sort of jaded. Nothing scares me. This isn't you know, and then uh, until it goes very very extreme, Uh, is is that a sort of danger with horror that you sort of desensitised to it? Definitely. And um,
0: it was part of the conditions of watching it was that I was watching a lot of these things and I had to kind of check myself that, you know, if if you've watched if you watch. uh, the others after Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you might think that it's quite a gentle, <laughs> uh, you know, quite a gentle film. It's got Nicole Kidman in it, whatever. If you watch it on its own, and obviously it is a really scary and beautiful film. But so you needed to, yeah, there needed to be some sort of sensitivity to how I watched things, because actually, and also, if you watch something, you know, I was watching five or six films a day in the research. So some of those are first thing in the morning. Some of those are last thing at night. You know, obviously there's there's a difference that you get this at film festivals when, you know, midnight movies that are quite kind of schlocky and fun get amazing audience reactions. Whereas if you put something like Martyrs on <laughs> at midnight, everyone's going to be like, oh my God, just make it stop. Mm. So, you know, there's definitely a way to that. And I'm sure people out there are um, seek, seeking things and desensitised to, to them. I didn't find that. I actually found that what happened was is that I watched so many horror films in such a short period of time that I started to kind of if I say see things that's going to make you think that I lost my mind but it's more that when you were suddenly passing something it's more like out of the corner of your eye and because you're watching so much horror imagery my brain kind of filled in the gaps so for that period yeah I did get things got pretty intense and you know I pass an empty car or something and I am Just think, was there something, was there someone in that car? Was there like a skeleton in that car? And look back and there's nothing in there. Every van's a murder van. Yeah, it wasn't that I was being haunted. It wasn't that I was gone crazy. It's just obviously that if you load your brain with all that imagery, it's it's gonna you're gonna start seeing it back at yourself. So, it, yeah, don't watch eight horror movies a day for six months. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it, it, it's the thing. Don't do that. With, it's really bad for you. <laughs>
2: with your grandma, <laughs> with various yeah. members of your family.
0: I wish. Yeah, I wish any of my family had been up for it, but no, it's just me. So, um, yeah, don't did do you, that.
2: Did you get to the point where you'd open a cupboard door and then you'd close it and you'd be like, oh? I- Somebody should have been there, really. That's fair.
0: The... <laughs> no, but like I say, just, yeah, just whenever there was a gap to be filled by my brain, it filled it with something really right. bad. And it took a little while to wear off, and it did wear off, obviously. But, like, yeah, I was glad I was glad when it did, and I needed a break afterwards.
2: Do you think there are Of those seven things that you sort of graded, do you think there's a kind of hierarchy to them sometimes in the sense that, like, for instance, jump scares, right? I always... Uh, was it Hanif Qureshi or someone said, uh, you know... Nothing scary happened in this movie. Just a, f- uh, a few loud things happened suddenly, and it was. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a pretty good definition of a lot of horror films.
0: I think there's there's something to be said for all of them. Mm-hmm. And if you have a movie that relies only on jump scares, then you probably have a pretty dumb movie. It might work and it might work the first time but it's unlikely to have that you know we're talking about the exorcist now from 1973 it's unlikely to, to have that kind of continuation Was actually the things that work best do use all, different elements of these things at different times so you watch something like the orphanage which i think is a beautiful film and really scary mostly it's dread it's uncanny, so you know little masks and that kind of stuff but there's a jump scare spoilers for people who haven't seen it halfway through with someone you believe to be dead jumps up at the camera not quite dead and it's and it, this is a very subtle movie this is a movie that doesn't rely on jump scares but that jump scare is absolutely brilliant and I watched it in a critic screening and there was there was like a a sort of venerable newspaper critic next to me and honestly I thought he was a goddard because he just went like because <laughs> so it was so well done and yet so if that movie had only been those jump scares they'd have dissipated it in effect but using that one amongst all the dread and amongst all the kind of stuff was brilliant
2: yeah, yeah. And that's that's a good point. It's kind of like all the ingredients to make us yeah. to bring together with the recipe.
0: Yeah, exactly. This is a feast, your your beautiful horror movie, and one of the courses is is, is the unexpected is jump scares is whatever, and another course is grotesquery. But equally, if it's all water, wall body horror, you may find that people are no longer scared that
2: they're they're enjoying it or taking it in a different way. You know, like spatter movies don't tend to be scary, do they? But there are a certain sort of, um, uh, there's a certain sort of genre or subgenre of American horror movie that seems to be like an action movie where instead of the action scenes, you just have like an elaborate death. So, I mean, I'm thinking final destination or something like that where you're not really, it's not scary. It's just, it's just like, Hmm, how are they going to die? This time? Oh, escalator. Oh, okay. Let's see what happens here. You know?
0: I love those films, but yeah, they're not scary and they're not in the book for that reason. Um, Hmm. And Ditto, um, Friday the 13th, actually, there's nothing really that that raises a pulse that much. Um, Ditto, Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a bit more contentious leaving leaving out the first one, but actually it just feels like Freddy is so well known to people and the sort of wisecracking and the, the product placement and stuff that he is no longer that scary to a modern audience, which I accept might be controversial, but that's just the way I feel looking back at the films. You know, I'm not saying they're without merit, just that like he's become something else
2: Mm, yeah, Rick and Morty do a, a really good parody of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, uh, you know where he keeps he keeps saying "bitch" at the end of every, you know, <laughs> and then he goes home and has he goes home and has dinner with his with his wife, and he says, "Where's the ketchup, bitch?" and his yeah. wife says, "Out there, not in here. <laughs> Don't bring
0: that's for work. Don't bring it home." Well, exactly. Once it's reached the point of that kind of parody, it is hard
2: to be scared by something, you know. Even if it even if it's doing loads of other things. Yeah, that's so so bizarre that that, because I mean he's a pedophile. I mean that's I mean when I watched the first one, it was a genuine like oh what a horrible thing Mm. and it was kind of morally complex and stuff. But you're right, he became sort of like an anti-hero, I guess.
0: Yeah, and you know one of those uh, like the the slasher things often you know they they say you're rooting for the person in the mask to kill the teenagers, and so that with Freddy Krueger is particularly. Icky because you you know in the later series you're rooting for a deceased um, resurrected <laughs> paedophile burnt face paedophile finger yeah it's very it's very complicated and so on that level hard to enjoy hard to laugh
2: off and equally hard to be scared by I'd say are there any films that you you find too scary that you 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 or, or or kind of <laughs> un, unwatchable you are just like ah oh, just no 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 I don't want to do do that to myself like a roller coaster that you think nope that's too it was. Like, they don't have the regulations. There have been some things over the years that have got close to it, and one of
0: the things with with researching for this book is that what you want is you want to find the biting point so that you're scared mm. but you're not terrified because you know you say what if my wife had been out and I'm actually like, well, been away and I'm like well I'm in the flat by myself and watching whatever it is and I'm terrified. In fact, I'm trying to find the most terrifying films ever. So I mean, there's nothing that I've seen for a while that's on that list. Over the years, things have sort of have reached that that point. But, you know, you see them again and it's not quite so bad. Um, the last thing that really scared me was an Argentine film called Terrified, which is mm. absolutely batshit. And it includes one of the chapters in the book. I hadn't even heard of it when I started researching. And it is really, it's almost like a kind of, it's got a Lovecraftian thing, but it's almost like if someone did the, the X-rated version of a Stephen King's It, like mm. just it's a neighbourhood in in in, um, Buenos Aires, beset by horrible creatures, horrible Lovecraftian creatures coming out of the woodwork, out of the drain, attacking children under the bed. It's got that horrible, like, something under the bed thing that can do so well with quite extreme gore and just with no... uh, Also, you know, it's a foreign film, so it doesn't have any of that Hollywood safety net. Children Mm. die, you know, terrible things happen, and no-one's safe, and it's absolutely demented, but that dementedness... Uh, I means you're not quite sure what you're seeing, you're not quite sure where it's going to go, you can't second guess it, and I found that really scary. And I had to turn it off and then watch the rest of it, you know, the next day or something, which is obviously a massive recommendation
2: for, <laughs> for in terms I, of the book. But, I've written down the title. <laughs> yeah, be go. careful though. It, that is really scary, really, yeah. really scary. I would say. Yeah, no, no there's no way I'm not going to watch it now. But but I am. I am not like uh, I, the calluses have not formed over my fear muscle. It's I'm. I get. I, there are certain films like, um, what was that film? Tool, the Toolbox Murders, which was called High Tension, okay. I think, in Alexandria. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was
0: Switchblade Romance in this. Ah,
2: right. Okay. Country, yeah, it's got yeah. it's got two or three different titles. I think in America yeah. it was called The Toolbox Murders, and in France it was, anyway. Um, yeah, Hot Tension. In France, that's right. Yeah, that's why I've got yeah. that in my head. Uh, that's yeah, a good so, movie. That's in the book. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I know. It's but again, that was a film that I sort of um, had to sort of keep pausing and having a walk around, and the, the the fast forward rewind button sometimes gets used as well. What was it about that film? That what was it about um, Switchblade
0: Romance? by romance tension that got to you?
2: Um, I it was I just felt there was a real um, well that dread absolutely that you knew there was something something was going down and and the uh <laughs> something's quite literally going down l- yeah <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sorry
0: <laughs> pardon me sorry
2: and also that idea of like um you know the safety goes quite quickly in that film in the sense yeah. that you think i think the dad gets sort of beheaded right at the very beginning and he's like oh oh wow there's no Ooh. uh no one's safe and um it was one of those films that you know spoiler well i'm not going to spoil it but the the ending the explanation at the end was really unsatisfactory it was really yeah. like what the you know i'd rather you just not have a twist than have such a silly twist um but you know it it was very effective I just remember certain sequences. There's a sequence like in a petrol station as well, which yeah. is really, really well done and really
0: tense and and it's really tense. really yeah. bloody. And yeah, you don't yeah, the, the brakes are off. It's an unsafe mm. movie because you don't know what's who's you don't know what's gonna happen. It, it does tend to happen more in foreign movies, I find, in non-Hollywood movies. Mm. Um, they don't they don't have to tick the boxes, there doesn't have to be a happy ending. In this sense, the ending makes absolutely no sense at all, but who cares because the whole <laughs> thing's terrifying.
2: Yeah, and I I, I I also watched one of those films which was like similar to you talking about Terrified. So um somebody said, Oh, you, this is an unwatchable film, it's so scary, it was Cannibal Holocaust, a Diodati uh movie, yeah. which, which 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 has objectionable things in it you know, regardless of the, it has all animal torture in it, uh, un- yeah. un- unsimulated animal torture and stuff like that. So it's like, it's objectionable on those grounds alone, I think, but but it is also really, really horrible.
0: Very, It's a very effective movie and it's a very, um, yeah, obviously we can't, um, yeah, I can't be down with that. I'm vegetarian. I can't be down with people torturing animals on sure. the film. But the, but the film is uh, is intelligent, and that's one of the reasons that it's it's so effective. Because the stupid versions of that film we've all seen as well are just awful. Like uh, Eli Roth. Um, yeah, there for is instance. an intelligence behind it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't
2: think that no, there's no Eli Roth films in the book. <laughs> well, I would argue that Hostel did have it. I think it had a notoriety because of that. That idea was a good one and yeah. the um and the it was the first of that horror porn uh, sorry torture porn sort of idea yeah not necessarily the very first but there was a first sort of mainstream version of that um i found that so the in looking for the scariest
0: things that torture porn doesn't really work for me so there's some films in there that could be so martyrs you could call torture porn mm. wolf creek you can maybe call torture porn but yeah those are probably the only two in the book that, that because I think they do lots of other things to try and scare you, other than just showing you the bodies being flayed. And yeah, Poster one and two were horribly effective. Mm. Um, I don't remember them being scary. I just remember them being sort of yeah, horrible, gruesome. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's that's they're not they're not in there. But should there be a book of horror sequel, I will I will bear, <laughs> bear those doing my. Is that a possibility? Ying? Well, it's certainly be worth an update in a little while because, you know, the, so the latest film in the book is St Maud, which I saw before it came out and then it was delayed by COVID. So actually the book came out and the film hadn't come out, which was very rare. So it looked looks like the book was ahead of its time. But actually, it's just, you know, how things go with release schedules. But obviously the films in the book end in 2020. And there'll be a ton of, you know, new scary stuff released in the, in, the, in the years after. So it'd be really cool to revisit it after a certain period of time. Certainly, I am still currently horrored out. And I don't think I'd write an entire book about horror for a little bit. Yeah, guess, you'd want a you five know, or ten year pour gap. your whole self. Yeah, maybe. Also, you know, I, this is my one chance to write the book I wanted to write my whole life. I poured my entire body and soul into it. And you can't just do that again two years later. You know, you need to find something else to get inspired by
2: it yeah yeah but i mean i i it's obviously written by someone with a real passion and that's and that sort of oh, comes really. through um and and the level of detail as well is really interesting The how how you know i i'm a, a barney barney um did he work on your great director's um book as well no so
0: that was a, a, a sort of more sort of graphic artist called andy tui who did sort of quite colorful quite sort of diagrammatic pictures of directors faces yeah and um yeah his that was my first book but that was that was Andy's book really that I did the text for right Uh, this is the other way around this is my book that Barney did the illustrations for but um so he went off on his own with no brief and did 34 plus just amazing black and white sort of creepy uh, yeah pictures um, to, to supplement the text instead of having something like posters or photos, which is kind of the standard for these things. Actually, there's just a ton of bespoke artwork um, which I think is kind of added value. It's oh, really, absolutely. He you know, really, really conjures the mood that the films do that perhaps also will that, you know, the text is um, analyzing things and maybe pulling them apart. Whereas I feel like the illustrations are trying to make you scared in the same way that the film does. So they work really
2: effectively. It, it draws out that atmosphere the, uh, of each yeah. film. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're, they're a real bonus. Um, and it's, um, yeah, and I think that's a, this sort of film book, which is is kind of visual. I, I hesitate to use the sort of word coffee coffee table book because I know it's sometimes used as a little bit too negatively or disparagingly. Mm-hmm. But this is a really good book for that. It's a really good book for, for sort of pouring over and just enjoying also, as you say, the look of it, as well as obviously your wonderful words.
0: Well, hopefully, I mean, there's always, as I said, there's, you know, there's the diagrams and there's the symbols and the scare tactics and the illustrations. The idea being that, you know, we're trying to recreate some of the experience of, of being in a horror movie, which you can't do with words alone and also give the reader something more than you can get online or, you know, more than you, the idea that this is a whole, uh, whole sort of experiential look at these films. Um, so hopefully some of that comes across. And yeah, if it's on a coffee
2: table somewhere, you know, yay! Yeah, yeah, I, don't, I don't mind that at all. Like m- m- more the merrier. So that's great. Absolutely. And I mean, I think horror is in a sort of really healthy place at the moment. I think there's a lot of great horror movies coming out. You just mentioned Saint Maud. Sensor was out. Yeah. Uh, you've had, um, yeah. you know, films like Midsummer. You had Jordan Peele's yeah. films. The the new Invisible Man. I thought was was a really superb, uh, an effective sort of take. Um, Okay, so I've got to ask you a final question, which is what film book would you recommend, Matt, for our viewers? Uh, listeners, viewers, listeners. God um, damn it. I'll I,
0: cut I'll cut
2: that out. Um, I'll cut I'll cut it out and I'll make it listeners.
0: Will you cut the bit out when I tell you to talk about Barney as well? Now, I'm not
2: yeah? cutting anything out. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I've stopped cutting stuff out. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean uh, maybe I'm not. <laughs> okay. Do you want to ask me again? No, no, go ahead. List, uh, yeah, sorry, I will do. Um, so, um, what film book would you recommend for our listeners? I would recommend
0: a book called Your Face Here by Ali Catterall and Simon Wells. And that is a look at um, cult British films, such as A Hard Day's Night, a Clockwork Orange, uh, The Wicker Man, Naked, all these sort of great offbeat classics of British cinema. And what it does is, uh, it's I know Ali actually he's a friend of mine. So, but uh, this recommendation would stand anyway. Is what it does is it's the it's, it's if someone a book deal was given to two guys and they just went we're going to write the absolute hell out of it. So there's interviews they go to the locations they analyse the films they analyse the history of sort of the British cult. Uh, cult film, and uh, it's a really, really easy, fun read. And I've got to say, it really inspired Britpop cinema. I didn't realise how much, but lots of how I decided to format that and how much I tried to throw into that book is from just loving this. Uh, your face here, I found myself. I must have read it ten times um, over and over again. I just, you know, I'm one of those people that when I like something, I kind of really go at it. So I would
2: highly, highly recommend that to your listeners. Excellent, brilliant. I'll uh, I'll definitely get a copy of that because I haven't I haven't read it. So uh, and they, who knows, potential guests, very potential guests. Yeah,
0: I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, um, yeah, they, yeah, Ali would be great on here. Yeah.
2: I, I said final question, but let's have another final question as well. What, how do you? I, I I was waffling on there a little bit about um, you know the state of of horror at the moment. How do you feel as a as a as a big horror fan? How are you? Uh, are you happy with the way things are? Do you have any problems or criticisms?
0: It's in really health, and it's, it seems to be going from strength to strength. I felt at the turn of the millennium, we were in a new golden age. I thought that was when I first started thinking about this. I thought we got J-horror, you know, Ringu and all the stuff. We've got Blair Witch Project, um, Torture Porn, which, you know, sometimes did at least have a sort of political undercurrent. And it felt like lots of stuff happening. Spanish horror was brilliant. And then it just never seemed to end. Like it didn't, there doesn't seem to be a dry patch between then and here. And now, like you said, we talked about host earlier things like his house uh people dealing with really genuine uh, you know the problems of the world today quickly cheaply and imaginatively through horror movies as opposed to making sort of an issue movie that might people might not see um, so i think it's in really rude health and the more atomized we are the lockdowns people can still make horror movies you can still always say all we need is an idea and a camera I think it's going to continue to be in rude health. Hopefully the world will start to heal itself a little bit and that would be great and the horror gets worse for a bit. That would be amazing. But unfortunately, <laughs> the world's an absolute shit show and the
2: horror, the horror movies go from strength to strength. <laughs> that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the artist who gets all of his, you know, uh, inspiration from being miserable. You know, I, I, I don't mind having yeah. a bad album every now and again if my life gets better, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: I would take... The, the loss of the good horror movies for an improvement in the, in the world's fortunes, tr- truly. But but if we have to have one, at least we've got the other, you know.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good point. And it's a really good point about from the turn of the millennium until until now, uh, all those yeah. different international traditions. I just came back from the Middle East. I was at a film festival and places like Saudi Arabia just started making films right. uh, and they're making horror movies, you know. that's. Oh, the, I'd love
0: to see some of those.
2: And it's also like as as with J horror, sort of tapped into a whole bunch of folk horror that we don't really have much access to because it's from a, another culture. Um yeah. So the Middle East has a whole, you know, the idea of jinns and the idea you know, has a whole tapestry of of folklore and 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 things to sort of bring out, you know. And we've only yeah. just got. I mean, a, there's under I, the shadow,
0: I, isn't there? Yeah. Under the yeah. shadow from a few years ago, which is Iranian British, I believe. But which, yeah, exactly, draws on, on a mythology that we don't know. And also against a backdrop of, you know, war-torn Tehran, which is much more, um, a much more uh, dangerous and scary place to live than most of our lives in the West. So it was a really, you know, really rich backdrop for a horror movie.
2: Brilliant, Matt. I really uh, that was that was really good. Um thanks thanks very much for for uh, for the books. I really enjoyed. Uh, dipping into them, and I, I will be definitely, uh, definitely sort of referring back to the, the horror book from time to time. Yeah, well, if you ever need to know a film, you ever need to watch a film and want something that's going to
0: scare you, I guarantee any film in that book is has got its scary moments. I swear. <music>
2: Okay, so that was our conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, please remember, if you like the episode, to share and like and spread the word. You can email me or get in touch with me via Twitter, at Dr. John T. Um My DMs are open, especially if you have any suggestions uh, of guests or, or suggestions about the podcast uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, thank you so much for your support. Thank you also goes to Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Howard for the art and Matt Glasby for uh, participating. Until next week, please take care.